Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In our first segment, a Connecticut Christmas story, courtesy of Harriet Beecher Stowe. But first, a quick note about the music in this episode. You'll be hearing excerpts from Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn's jazz version of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet, performed by the New England Jazz Ensemble, a Connecticut-based big band. This is not, of course, historically accurate music for either segment. Tchaikovsky's score premiered in 1892 and Ellington's jazz version in 1960. But it sure is a crowd pleaser. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. In this episode, I share with you one of my favorite holiday stories. It comes from Harriet Beecher Stowe's last novel, Poganuck People, published in 1878. The story, described as semi-autobiographical, is set in the mythical town of Poganuck, a stand-in for Litchfield, Connecticut, where Stowe grew up, or any one of Connecticut's many provincial towns of the era. The story is set circa 1818, and what follows is my condensation of the story, mostly in Stowe's words. I hope you enjoy it. The story begins in a large, roomy, clean New England kitchen with a great wide fireplace and a tall clock ticking in the corner. The scoured tin and pewter on the dresser Stowe writes caught flickering gleams of brightness from the western sunbeams that shone through the network of elm boughs, rattling and tapping as the wind blew them against the window. It was not quite half-past four o'clock, yet the December sun hung low and red in the western horizon, telling that the time of the shortest winter days was come. All was quiet, save a servant, with plump arms stripped to the elbow and hands plunged deep in the white, elastic cushion of puffy dough which rose under them as she needed. Suddenly, in burst little Dolly Cushing, cheeks glowing from the keen winter wind. "'Oh, nabby, nabby,' she says. "'Do tell me what they are doing up at your church.' I've seen them all day carrying armfuls and armfuls, ever so much, spruce and pine. Jim Brace and Tom Peters told me they were going to have illumination there. And when I asked what illumination was, they only laughed at me and called me a Presbyterian. You see, Dolly is the daughter of the town's congregational, or Presbyterian, minister. The story is set in that era in New England when Congregationalists did not celebrate Christmas, a holdover from the Puritan ban on the holiday. The Puritans had mainly objected to Christmas's pagan roots and winter solstice festivals, as the nature of those celebrations was anathema to them. For centuries, the underclasses had marked Christmas by letting off steam through rowdy parties and aggressive begging door-to-door, including violence and destruction of property. Puritans noted, too, that there was no evidence, biblical or otherwise, that Jesus was born on December 25th, and so they ignored it, treating December 25th just like any other day. Episcopalians, however, including Nabby's church across the street from Dolly's house, tried to reform Christmas ways by layering religious observances on the day, such as the illumination service on Christmas Eve and another service Christmas Day. Let's pick up the story. (music) 
Well, you see, Navi says, tomorrow's Christmas, and they've been dressed in the church with ground pine and spruce boughs and made it just as beautiful as can be, and they're going to have a great gold star over the chancel, and they put a candle in every single pane of glass. Now, this sentence was a perfect labyrinth of mystery to Dolly, for she did not know what Christmas was. She did not know what a chancel was. She was wholly in the dark what it was all about, and yet her bosom heaved and her breath grew short, her color came and went, and she trembled with excitement. Something bright, beautiful, glorious must be coming into her life, and oh, if she could only see it. What is Christmas, Nabby? Dolly asks. Why, it's the day Christ was born, Nabby replies. Why, my papa believes Christ was born, said Dolly with an injured air. You needn't tell me that he don't. I've heard him read all about it in the Testament. Your papa ain't Episcopal, Nabby explains, and he don't believe in keeping none of them air prayer book days, Christmas nor Easter. Poor little Dolly stood still, looking wistful and bewildered. This great and wonderful idea of Christmas, and all this confusion of images of gold stars and green wreaths and illuminated windows and singing and music, all done because Christ was born, and yet something that her papa did not approve of, it was a hopeless puzzle. That evening, Dolly's parents went out to a prayer meeting, and Dolly was dutifully put to bed after dinner as her parents set off in the horse and sleigh. Dolly's much older brother secretly planned to go to this illumination, and Dolly begs them to take her. Oh, you mustn't go. You're a little girl, and it's your bedtime, said Tom and Bill, as, with spring barking at their heels, they burst in a windy swoop of noise out of the house, boys and dog about equally intelligent as to what it was all about. Stowe pauses here to explain the presence of Episcopalians in a small Puritan town. The Episcopal Church in New England in the early days was emphatically a root out of dry ground, she writes. Its forms and ceremonies were all associated with persecution which drove the Puritans out of England. It was unfortunately true that the forms of the Church of England were cultivated and maintained in New England by the very party whose intolerance and tyranny brought about the Revolutionary War. And in the revolutionary struggle, the Episcopal Church was very generally on the Tory side. Whereas Congregationalism was the religion established by the law in New England, and for a long time after the Revolutionary War, the old regime of the state held undisputed sway in New England. There was one meeting house, the one minister, in every village. Every householder was taxed for the support of public worship, and stringent law and custom demanded of everyone a personal attendance on Sunday at both services. There was no place for differences of religious opinion. But already, at the time of Stowe's Poganuck, the Congregational Church's influence was waning. Hence the recently built Episcopal Church across the street, now decked out with garlands and wreaths and the promised gold star that was not gold, but pasteboard and gilt paper ordered in Boston and assembled by Miss Ida Lewis. And yet it glittered, and the people who filled the pews were prepared to be dazzled by this paper star. Well, Dolly, hustled off to bed the minute supper was over, tried to go to sleep. But sleep she could not. The wide, bright, wistful blue eyes lay shining like two stars towards the fading light in the window, and the little ears restrained to catch every sound. She heard the shouts of Tom and Bill and the loud barking of Spring. Spring, her faithful attendant, the most loving and sympathetic of dogs, her friend and confidential counselor, in many a solitary ramble. Spring had gone with the boys to see the sight and left her alone. Eventually she heard Nabby finishing up her chores and the sound of her too heading over to the church, and then Dolly was very much alone in the quiet house. But then a bright thought popped into her head. She could see the church from the front windows of the house. She would go there and look. 
Well, you know where this is headed. She can see from the window, but not quite well enough. Her imagination fired. She opens the front door and hears the sound of Christmas hymns wafting through the crisp night air. Dolly's soul was all aglow. Her nerves tingled and vibrated. She could no longer contain herself. And off she went, pressing her way through the crowds, filing into the church. She found a nook under a bower of spruce where she could see the garlands, the candlelight, and the shiny gold star. But during the sermon, Dolly fell fast asleep and slept as quietly as a pet lamb in a meadow, lying in a little warm roll back under the shadows of the spruces. And she might have been left there all night but for spring, who sniffed her out, licking her face and waking her up. A neighbor picks her up and carries her home, just as Parson and Mrs. Cushing arrive home, too. Perhaps it's the spirit of Christmas after all that Parson Cushing can't bring himself to punish her. But he vows to his wife, Stowe writes, to preach a sermon right away that will set all this Christmas matter straight. There is not a shadow of evidence that the first Christians kept Christmas. It wasn't kept for the first three centuries, nor was Christ born anywhere near the 25th of December, he fumes. Furthermore, he suspects the Democrats are behind this new move to celebrate the holiday, and they are just using this church to carry their own party purposes, to break up the standing order and put down all the laws that are left to protect religion and morals. The next morning found little Dolly's blue eyes wide open with all the wondering eagerness of a new idea. But it must wait. There were family prayers and then off to school because, as her father says to his children, if we are going to keep any day on account of the birth of Christ, the best way to keep it is by doing all our duties on that day better than any other. Your duty is to be good children, go to school, and mind your lessons. Now Dolly's mother was from an Episcopal family, and after school a package of Christmas presents arrives from Boston. Soon open, it contained a store of treasures, a smart little red dress and a pair of red shoes for Dolly, a half-dozen pocket handkerchiefs for Parson Cushing, and books handsomely bound for the boys and a bonnet trimming for Mrs. Cushing. On the whole, when Dolly had said her prayers that night and thought the matter over, she concluded that her Christmas Day had been quite a success. Still, the next Sunday was one of high expectation among the town folk. Everybody was on tiptoe to hear what Parson Cushing would have to say. The meeting house was one of those square, bald, unsentimental structures of which but few specimens have come down to us from old times, Stowe writes. They were wide, roomy, and of desolate plainness. The Sunday in question was one of those many when the thermometer stood any number of degrees below zero, the air clear, keen, and cutting, and the sanctuary unheated. When the parson rose to his sermon, the music had done its work on its audience in exalting their mood to listen with sympathetic ears to whatever he might have to say. He announced his text from Galatians. But now, after that ye have known of God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed on your labor in vain. What was to come of such a text was plain to be seen. The yoke of bondage from which Puritan New England had escaped across the waters of a stormy sea, the liberty in Christ which they had won in this new untrodden land made theirs by prayers and toil and tears and sacrifice for which they had just fought through a tedious and bloody war, there was enough in all of these remembrances to evoke a strain of heartfelt eloquence which would awaken a response in every heart. Then the parson began his investigations of Christmas, and here his sermon bristled with quotations in good Greek and Latin. But the triumphant point in his argument was founded on a passage in Clemens Alexandrinus, who, writing at the close of the second century, speaks of the date of Christ's birth as an unimportant and unsettled point, which they say was the 20th of May. <laughs> 
If it had been important for us to keep Christmas, Parson says, certainly the date would not have been left in uncertainty. We find no traces in the New Testament of any such observance. We never read of Christmas as kept by the apostles and their followers, and it appears that it was some centuries after Christ before such an observance was heard of at all. And here the parson rained down names and authorities and quotations establishing conflicting supposition till the wilderness of learning grew so wild that only the academy teachers seemed able to follow it. The sermon ended with a stirring appeal to walk in the good old ways that had come down from the fathers. It was evident from the enkindled faces in every pew that the parson carried his audience fully with him. As to Dolly, who as a babe of grace was duly brought to church every Sunday, her meditations were of a very confused order. Since the gift of her red dress and red shoes and the well-remembered delightful scene at the Episcopal Church on Christmas Eve, Christmas had been an interesting and beautiful mystery to her mind, a sort of illuminated mist now appearing and now disappearing. Sometimes when her father in his sermon pronounced the word Christmas in emphatic tones, she fixed her great blue eyes seriously upon him and wondered what he could be saying. But when Greek and Latin quotations began to rain thick and fast, she turned to Spring, who as a good, well-trained minister's dog was allowed to go to meeting. When she was cold, a very common experience in those windy pews, she nestled close to Spring and put her arms around his neck and sometimes dropped to sleep on his back. Those sanctuary naps were a generally accorded privilege to the babes of the church who could not be expected to digest the strong meat of the elders. Dolly had one comfort of which nothing could deprive her. She had been allowed to wear her new red dress and red shoes. It is true that the dress was covered up under a dark, stout little woolen coat, and the red shoes quenched in the shade of a pair of socks designed to protect her feet from freezing. But at intervals, Dolly pulled open her little coat and looked at the red dress and felt warmer for it, and thought whether there was any such day as Christmas or not. It was a nice thing for little girls to have aunties and grandmas who believed in it and sent them pretty things in consequence. Stowe's story goes on to describe election day that spring when neighbor is pitted against neighbor in deciding whether to stay true to the town's Puritan traditions or loosen those ways under the new state constitution to allow greater civic and religious freedoms, to attend whatever church one wants, for example, or not attend church at all on Sunday. Across America in that era, the celebration of Christmas was beginning to gain traction. Historian Stephen Nissenbaum asserts that it was the introduction of the figure of St. Nicholas to America in 1810 by John Pintard of the New York Historical Society and publication of Clement Seymour's poem A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1822 that began to popularize Christmas, and part of that process was to turn its focus on family and giving presents to children. Stowe's Poganuck people, which interweaves the political upheaval in Connecticut that broke the Congregationalist's hold on power and broke up the standing order, with Dolly's discovery of this bright, wonderful thing called Christmas so beautifully illustrates this moment in Connecticut and American history. It's about Dolly's awakening to the magic of Christmas and about Connecticut's awakening to a new political landscape. I love Stowe's description of the newly built Episcopal Church decked out in garland and candlelight, and how not just Dolly, but her brothers and many of the town folk are drawn to it like moths to a flame. But most of all, I love that last image of Dolly's red dress and red shoes covered by the stout and sensible woolen coat that almost warms her from the inside. It is through young Dolly, who sees her world changing around her in ways she cannot understand, that Stowe reassures us that all will be okay in this land of steady habits. 
and that the loftiest of logic and rhetoric, no matter how powerfully delivered and with the greatest of authorities, will not win over the spirit of Christmas. Find a link to our photo essay on historic Connecticut-made or Connecticut-displayed Christmas decorations at ctexplore.org slash listen. Next up, a makeover 10 years in the making. This historic preservation story is brought to you by Connecticut Humanities. When Samuel and Olivia Clemens moved into their grand new home in Hartford in 1874, Three of the seven bedrooms were designated especially for guests. The grandest of these, the most special one reserved for the most special of guests, was on the first floor. It was lavishly decorated in 1881 and the plumbing in the guest bath updated with an early form of flush toilet. Known as the mahogany suite, it has existed in a state of half restoration for more than 10 years, a victim of those many funding challenges that museums and historic houses regularly face. But finally, the wait is over, and this holiday season is the perfect time to visit the Mark Twain house, to both see the house decorated for a Clemens Christmas, and to see the completed restoration of the mahogany suite. The restoration was more than 10 years in the making. Funding wasn't the only challenge. Much is unknown about how the rooms were decorated by the Clemenses. What visitors will see is a well-educated guess as to what the Clemens' guests experienced as they settled in for a nice long visit with the famous author and his family. Jennifer LaRue, editor of Connecticut Explored and the Twain House's new director of marketing, toured the suite with curator Tracy Brindle to find out more. Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg. This is Jennifer LaRue, the editor of Connecticut Explored. I'm standing here in the brand newly renovated mahogany suite at the Mark Twain House and Museum with the museum's Beatrice Fox Auerbach chief curator, Tracy Brindle. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Jennifer. Everybody's really psyched about this opening back up. Yes. The room has, it hasn't really been closed to the public, but it hasn't been furnished in over 10 years. About 13 years ago, I decided to do some um, historical archaeology in this space to find out more about what the walls would have been covered with, what the floor would have been covered with, looking for what colors may have been used in this room. So all the furniture was removed and the floor was ripped up and there was a lot of digging going on in this room. Uh, And since that time, the public has been able to kind of get a peek in here and see what restoration looks like. But unfortunately, the money ran out about 10 years ago. So the room had been sitting empty. 
And uh, just recently, we've been able to uh, restore it using the research that was done 10 years ago, as well as new research that um, has been going on for the last two years or so. What was the space used for primarily um, when the Clemens family lived here? Well, this is the first floor guest bedroom. There are three guest rooms in this house, one on each floor. This is by far the most fashionable. It has all of the modern conveniences. This is a really special guest bedroom. The mahogany room got its name because the furniture that the Clemenses purchased for this room was made of mahogany, as well as some of it is trimmed with mahogany. Basically, the entry door is off of the library. And to think about being a guest in this room, if you can't sleep and it's one o'clock in the morning, you can creep out into the library, pluck a book off the shelf, and sit in there and read. And I think that's wonderful. That just, <laughs> I, I rarely get the chills, but that actually just gave me the chills to think about that. Yeah. So people would come and stay for weeks at a time even. Um, at one point, Livy felt like she was running a four-star hotel and uh, we have a bedroom as part of the suite as well as a dressing room and a bathroom and that was all Libby's design. When they purchased the land to build a house here Mark Twain was, wasn't known as the famous author that he eventually came to be so the house was built really with Libby's family's money so she had a big say in how the house was arranged and had a good relationship with the architect Edward Tuckerman Potter. So she laid out all the rooms of the house. It's also why the house is turned. It's not facing the street. She wanted rooms like the library and even this, this guest room to face the, the outskirts of Hartford. So you can see the Park River running below as well as the other meadows and fields. A glimpse of nature. Grace King was a Southern writer who came to visit the Clemenses. Uh, when she was here and stayed in the Mahogany Guest Suite, she wrote that she felt like she was beauty and Beast had left her alone in the palace. William Dean Howells was another uh, very good friend of Samuel Clemens, who's also an author, and he stayed uh, in this room several times, called it an exalted fairy palace. His little boy, Johnny, uh, came to stay. Another famous guest was uh, Bret Hart. He was another kind of humorous um, writer of the day. Yes. Um, kind of in the same circle as, as Mark Twain would have been. When Bret Hart stayed uh, here, he had a deadline that he had to meet, and he stayed up with Samuel Clemens in the library long hours of the night drinking whiskey. And Sam didn't think that he could possibly finish finish his work, but by the next morning... He had, he had completed his entire work, even though he, he didn't even seem at all bothered by uh, his evening of drinking. So these were famous people. These were not, this is not where um, family would stay uh, necessarily. When family came to visit, typically they would stay on the second floor guest bedroom. And usually that would have been Libby's mother. Um, it was very special when Libby's mother would come to visit. Tell about some of the features that you've restored to the space. So we have a speaker tube in this room. It's one of three speaker tubes that are in the house and they all connect to the kitchen. And so if you were a guest staying here, you would get out of bed in the morning and you would go over to the speaker tube and you would talk to it. <laughs> and one of the housemaids would talk back to you. So you would be asking probably for um, a fire to be made in the hearth. You're uh, drawing attention to the speaking tube has made me focus on this fantastic wallpaper 
This is Candace Wheeler's honeycomb design. Candace Wheeler was one of the associated artists under Lewis Comfort Tiffany, who uh, decorated the first floor of the Clemens's home in 1881. And this was chosen after determining what we did know about the decoration of this room and what we knew about what was available to the artists at the time. Unfortunately, we do not know exactly what was used on the walls. We can assume it was a wallpaper. I actually have the contract between the Clemenses and the Associated Artists. Oh, this is fascinating. All it says about the mahogany room is wall and ceiling papered. That's pretty vague. It is very vague. <laughs> In the bathroom and the dressing room, it was more likely that they used uh, distemper paint which comes off with water, so if they later decided that they wanted to change the color, they could easily do so. Unfortunately, we don't know a color scheme or a pattern. During that historical archaeology, they were only able to find a small scrap of wallpaper about the size of a pencil eraser. Oh, dear. And uh, it's been described as bright, fairly dark red. Bright, fairly dark red. They've been trying to date the wallpaper, so there's been a little bit of discussion over what the wallpaper should be. Well, now, I'm glad it is what it is because it's fantastic. It's got this honeycomb pattern in the background and these kind of almost gilded images of vines and honeybees with these pop-off-the-wall silver wings. Mm -hmm. And well, I'm sure once the lighting is on in here, they'll just glitter and yes, flicker. Yes, they should just be shimmering. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> So we do know that the uh, Candace Wheeler, again, she was one of the associated artists, so that would make sense. Uh, the question was, would this have been available to them at the time? Her design was featured in the design pamphlet, What Shall We Do With Our Walls? And she actually won a $2,000 prize for her honeybee pattern. Uh, that was published in 1881. So the question became, would the wallpaper have been available? It was discovered that uh, Chester Arthur had uh, a room in the White House decorated by the Associated Artists just before they came to do this room. Oh boy. And they actually used um, a piece of this wallpaper. Oh, wow. So Sam. that's how we know that the paper was available during the time. The, uh, the gasolier and the um, several sconces that we have um, throughout the room, they've been purchased for this room. They have um, this wonderful sort of rose gold finish to them, which goes beautifully with the other colors that are in this room. No significance to the Clemens family. There's only one light fixture that's in the house that was original to them. Something interesting about the, the dressing room that we've been discovering over the decades, really. When the Associated Artists decorated um, this room, they actually uh, moved the wall in here to, get, to have a little bit more space, so they've made room for a wardrobe and a closet. I know that people touring historic homes love to see the bathrooms. Yes. Can we go see the bathroom here? I'll just pass through the sliding door. Okay. This is awesome, too. <laughs> so as we stand here, there's a lot to talk about in this room. We could start with the double sink. Mm. This is the original uh, marble-topped sink. We're looking at the bathtub, and it is uh, zinc-lined. And this is from uh, the, about the 1890s. And it's been uh, restored and then installed. And it has a uh, mahogany cabinetry around it and a wood surround. And then behind me... We have a water closet. This is very exciting for us to, to have in here. 
we have the, I can lift this up for you, and you can see the seat. Oh boy, that does not look all that comfortable, but <laughs> better than, I mean, what would have preceded this, an outhouse? When the Clemenses built this house, they did have type of toilet. I would not call it a water closet because it did not have water. Mm -hmm. So it would have sort of a pan that would catch the waste and the pan would, would drop. We believe that they, at this time, during 1881, that they upgraded the toilets. At the time, there was a big push for sanitation. Water became very important, not only for sanitation, but at the time, people really believed in the water cure, which was using water for curing everything. Mm -hmm. So you were bathing more often, you were just sitting in water, you were drinking more water. You can see the pipes here from the, from the seat. And the, we have two pipes that go up to the tank, which sits about eight feet high or so. Uh, the tank is held up there with these beautiful brackets. Everybody's in love with these they are gorgeous. gorgeous brackets. They are way more than a water closet would require, <laughs> <Yes>. seemingly. <laughs> and then coming back down from the tank, we have a chain here. Hmm. Also more beautiful than it actually needs to be. And so when you pulled on the, pulled on the chain, um, that would start start the water. Uh, we actually do have toilet paper that we will be putting out for folks to see uh, when they come through the house. Did it come in a roll? No, it's actually in, comes in sheets and it looks sort of like a little book and you would tear off a sheet at a time. So there's so much to see, but I'd like to focus now a little bit on Christmas because the mahogany suite, in addition to being a guest suite, played an important role in the Clemson's uh, Christmas tradition, did it not? Yes. Livy was very generous. She had such a kind kind and generous heart. Even though the family went through some rough times, every Christmas she would make a list of people that she wanted to give gifts to, not just family or friends, but she would list out the unfortunate people that she knew and she would she would make a list of Christmas presents to get them and then she would pack up the baskets in this room. So she would be packing things like fruit, underwear, and socks, things that they really needed. But she would always, as her lady's maid, Katie Leary, remembered, she would always tuck in a little trinket of something special. Like if it was a child, it would be a little doll or toy, something specific to the person. Mm. And then the baskets would be put into the sleigh. And the Clemens daughters remember putting their coats on, putting their muffs on. Patrick McAleer, the coachman, would then take them around and deliver all of the baskets. In addition to you know, this opening on the weekend of our holiday house tour, um, we're just about to decorate for Christmas. We are. Last year it took about 40 hours. Oh, uh, wow. So we'll see what, we have a little bit more to do this year. We'll see how long that takes. But it usually takes about two nights and um, we have about eight very special people who come in and help us decorate. It's a very exciting time for us, and um, can't wait for people to see what Christmas traditions were like, not only for people during the Gilded Age, but for the Clemenses specifically. Well, Tracy, thank you so much. This has been fantastic, and I can't wait for everybody to get to come in and see your beautiful work here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. See the Mahogany Suite as part of the Mark Twain House's 36th Annual Holiday House Tour, a fundraising event in which people tour five area homes decorated for the holidays, 
plus the Mark Twain House. It's on December 4th, 2016. Tickets are available at marktwainhouse.org. You can also see the house decorated for the holidays through the first week of January. Many museums and historic sites offer special programming around the holidays. We invite you to visit your favorite site this holiday season. And don't forget a gift subscription to Connecticut Explored. New and gift subscriptions purchased before December 31st receive a bonus six issues for the price of four. Visit ctexplored.org slash holiday offer for details. And if you've become a fan of Grading the Nutmeg, support the podcast with a donation to the Friends of Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org slash friends and use coupon code Grading the Nutmeg, all one word, to designate your gift. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Connecticut Humanities, Beth Burgess of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, Tracy Brindle of the Mark Twain House, and the New England Jazz Ensemble. For more information on the New England Jazz Ensemble, visit neje.org. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays from the Office of the State Historian, Connecticut Explored, and Grading the Nutmeg.